there's something about exclusivity that captures your imagination. And it, it captures it like few other things in life. Exclusiveness. An example of exclu- exclusivity, actually one of the fifth most exclusive places on the planet, exists about 40 miles away from here. And they do exclusivity better than just about anything in the institution that you know of. There's a years-long wait list. Everyone wants to get on it. And really, the only way to get on it is kind of, is you have to know somebody who's a member, just to get on the wait list. You can get on the wait list, but you have to know somebody, actually get like a call back. The upfront cost of this place, just to be considered, is $25,000. And the yearly membership is an extra $10,000 a year. And that's just to hold a membership. Not to buy anything, not to eat there. This is Club 33 at Disneyland. But there's more. Those of you who are either going to college or have been to college, you know acceptance rates at college can also be kind of an exclusive thing. The more exclusive, the more expensive. Better looks on your resume. The most exclusive American universities, like Harvard, have gone from 14.3% in 1990 to 4.5% in 2019. Stanford has gone from 19.3% to 4%. University of Chicago has gone from 45%, half the people who applied got in, to today it's about 5%. No change in the curriculum, they just got more exclusive and more expensive. And people still want to go there. Actually even more so today than 20 years ago, than 30 years ago. I still remember going to the 2002 World Series at Angel Stadium when the tickets were 500 a person. Those same exact seats during the season were 15 bucks. It's just because it's more exclusive. More exclusive, the more you can charge for it. And it's, it doesn't really push you apart. Like, you actually want to be part of that. Like, I'll pay whatever to do this because it's so exclusive. And you might scoff, but you love exclusivity. Each and every one of you, you love exclusivity. That potentially fringe Facebook group you join only by invites. You have to get invited in, or else you can't be part of it. A party where you're one of the few who knew about it, or there's that inside circle at work that you're like, you, outside you say, I don't really want to be part of it, but inside you're like, but I kind of do want to be part of this. Just know what's going on. This is the remarkable thing about Jesus. It's the most, I'll call it, inclusively exclusive group ever. Because you can join, you can be part of this, only those who trust him, but everyone can trust him. Those exclusives, everyone has to trust, but anyone can. There's no flash or pump. There's no reason for you to boast. Because in John 9, Jesus takes in only the spiritually blind. He tells those who have physical sight, I don't want you. You have spiritual blindness to spiritual sights, I want you. And those who are sure, like the publican, that they can't get in. Versus those who say, yeah, I can get in, I can do this. 
the elites and the despised, the rich and the poor, those who are in and those who are out, Jesus takes both blind and sinner. That's really good news. Because the Pharisees, they could certainly see. That's what John 8 is all about. They see Jesus right in front of them. There's no physical blindness. There's nothing hindering their sights. Right in front of them, but they can't see. Juxtapose with today's passage with a physically blind person who can't see Jesus healing them. He's the one who believes. And so we're going to see this in three points. First is spiritual blindness, verses 1 through 7. Because like this man who's physically blind, you are spiritually blind if you don't believe in Jesus, if you're hardened against Jesus. And seconds is how it manifests. What is this spiritual blindness, how does it manifest in your lives, in our lives? And lastly is spiritual sights. How did and what does Jesus do to give you sights? Actually give you, not, to, not physical sights, spiritual sights. You can see something but not actually see it. You can hear something but not actually hear it. And so I, I pray this becomes clear throughout. Christ brings you from spiritual blindness to sights. We're going to start with point one, spiritual blindness in verse one. If you look at verse one with me, he just escaped the stoning of the Pharisees. That's the very end of John 8. Because Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. They're like, you just called yourself Yahweh. You predate Abraham. That's a blasphemy in our eyes. That's a blasphemy in our ears. Since they're about to stone him, so he escapes. Because it's not his hour to go to the cross. And they happen upon a man blind from birth. For those who see but cannot see, Pharisees of John 8, to now one who can't see, but will see. So how did the disciples interact with this man? Because they talk to him, or they talk about him, actually. Did the disciples, did they, did they refer to this blind man with compassion? Asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, you can heal. Why don't you heal this man? That's, that's probably how they should respond to him. See, a man who needs something, let's help him. But what do they say? Nothing about compassion. Lord, who sinned? That's their, that's their first question when they see somebody in need. Him, her, his parents. They're, they're sure Blindness is a result of sin. They're sure of it. It's as if it's a one-to-one correlation existed between sin and blindness. Because if it did, they'd be blind too. They don't realize it. If you were born with any malady, they would have looked at you and thought, well, who'd you, who'd you piss off? Why'd you, why'd you make God so mad at you? Or what'd your parents do? Like, God must be mad at you. So Jesus answers in verse 3, again, not their question, because Jesus doesn't almost ever ask their question. He, asks the, he, answers the, he answers the question they should have asked, which is what he does in verse 3. They should have asked, and this is Peter version, Jesus, how will you proclaim the kingdom of God and manifest the work of God through this man's blindness? That's what they should have asked. And so he kind of answers that question. 
Because Jesus has worked through the very work of the kingdom of God, which is in their midst. The walking temple, that's who they're with. The walking Sabbath, the walking temple, the walking glory of Yahweh in human flesh. And poetically, he proclaims that he is the light of the world. It's exactly how he's described in John 1. He's a light breaking into the darkness. And it's also appropriate because what does a blind man need? You need light. You can't see. You need light breaking in. So in verse 6, Jesus spits on the ground, forms from the dust a mixture of spittle and earth, and brings the clay to the man's eyes. Who does this remind you of? What does this remind you of? This is basically what Yahweh does in Genesis 2. He takes, takes from the ground, pulls from the ground, creates from the ground, man, breathes life into the ground and creates man. And so Jesus is, is doing that kind of thing. You could say breathing life into his eyes, breathing spiritual sight into his eyes. So Jesus is acting as the creator of all things, which is, is how he's described in John 1. He was with God, and he is God, creating all things in the world through him. But does this man ask anything? Does he ask Jesus to do anything? Does he bring Jesus over? Like, hey, Jesus, come over here. He can't see. He has no idea who's coming next to him. No clue. He just, somebody happens to come up to his eyes, rub him. He just, Jesus just comes and heals him. Doesn't even ask. This is versus John 5, when he does ask the man, would you like to be healed? He just walks up to him in John 9 and heals him. And when he's been washed with water, which again, should strike something, he's being purified. He regains his sights, and it's kind of like baptism for the eyes. A purification of the condition, because if you're blind, you can't go into the inner part of the temple. You can only see in the courtyard of the Gentiles. You can't go inside. You can't go inside if you're blind, if you're deaf, nothing. But now he can. Now he can go in. And this is purification. He actually goes to a pool, gets literally purified. Doesn't mean that's a result of sin, but he has to get purified to walk into the temple. And this also reminds you, if you know your Old Testament, specifically your prophets well, Isaiah talks about this. Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 7. It says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert, the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the hot of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds of rushes. That's verses 5 through 7. Verses 1 through 4, the Lord does all that stuff. Bringing the Lord, it says, that's the Lord. He's bringing in new creation. He's bringing in the Sabbath. He's bringing in all these new creation realities and saying, now that he's healing this man, like, that's new creation stuff. I'm healing you, not just to be healed, but I'm healing you. I'm healing you. This is, this is what God's kingdom looks like. 
He's not prescribing something. He's describing it. He's describing what the kingdom of God looks like. And just like this interaction is so, so, so is this point. This is the first seven verses. For now we will see how those with physical sights is actually a worse malady than this guy's. Physical sight, yet spiritual blindness. This brings us to point two, how this manifests. But in verses eight and following, a few things emerge because first and foremost, after he's healed, does anybody rejoice? He's been brought back in. He has his sights. Thank God he has his sights. There's no one who rejoices. They actually kind of just mock him even more. Because this man's neighbors come and bring him to the Pharisees, which is unlike what happens in John 5. John 5, where the lame man's healed, he goes to the Pharisees. Kind of tells on Jesus. Now his neighbors of this blind man goes to the Pharisees. They're probably trying to get him and whoever healed him in trouble. But you're actually not told why yet. John holds off on that information. Because this man was a beggar. He's both blind and a beggar. If you're blind, you're a beggar in the first century. There's, there's nothing you can do. Let's stop there for a second, though, before we move on. Because in a few verses, about 10, you'll meet his parents. And what's astonishing, you'd kind of assume he'd beg if he had no community or no, no, no parents. The Mosaic law prohibits you from not taking care of your own. Their neighbors are breaking God's law. His parents are breaking God's law because he's begging. He shouldn't have to. But everyone's much alive and no one's taking care of him. He's just kind of on the side of the temple begging when his neighbors and his parents are fully well. They just kind of left him on the side. They're worried about something, though. But John's withholding that information. It doesn't tell you until verse 15. And they ask him point blank, how are your eyes opened? It's, it's really not that sight's been stored so much as been sight's been given. He's never had sight. Now he has sight. He mentions Jesus, though it's not clear from the text that Jesus actually introduced himself. He may, might have done, but John doesn't tell you if he has. It's likely he just heard about Jesus, and he might have assumed this is Jesus. Or he introduced himself, but we're just not told from John 9 whether or not Jesus introduced himself. And so Jesus, they say, need to be brought before the Pharisees. But it's not as if the man knew where he went. He was blind. He's like, where'd he go? He's like, I have no idea. I was blind when he did this. Not until I went to the pool that I actually received my sight. You can almost hear the, this ominous music, though, as they start walking to the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees are like the real law guys. We're going to get this stuff right. They're the ones who are like, I can do the law, I can fulfill the law, and so can you. Why would they be so interested in what occurred to this man? You, you would think, again, they'd, they'd, be, they'd be celebrating. Like, this guy, his sight has been restored, he can come into the fold, he can come worship with us. 
But all they're worried about, we'll see soon, is their supposed violation. Because according to verse 14, this occurred on the Sabbath. And there's, there's their big no-no. You don't, do, you don't do work on the Sabbath. Mosaic law, you do not do work on the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. You're violating God's laws. What you can hear the Pharisees, it's, that's this, we can't do this. You're going to be thrown out of, of God's house and stoned. Rightly so. And so similar again, because we've actually kind of seen this story before. This is John 5 basically replayed. The slightly different malady in a different person. This is John 5 all over again. Because Jesus healed the lame man on the Sabbath, and it was questioned by the Pharisees. So the Pharisees asked the man the same questions the neighbors did, wondering why he would do this on the Sabbath, and to cough up who did it. In verse 16, though, you, you sense some doubt from some of the Pharisees. And it's however small it may be, because they start, they start thinking, no mere man can do this. We're not dealing with just a guy. How can a man who is a sinner do such signs, which assumes a sinner cannot do these signs? They're starting to pick up on something. A few of the Pharisees are. They're wrestling with what they know about the Sabbath laws and then what they clearly see in front of them. This happened on the Sabbath. No sinner can do this. Who are we dealing with? And like a summary from the Pharisees of Jesus' discourse from John 5, you can give, you can give Jesus' answer. He gives it to you four chapters earlier. Because I work as my Father works. Father is always been working on the Sabbath. Never stops. Preserves the world, created the world, preserves the world. Doesn't see us on the Sabbath, saying, oh, it's the Sabbath, I'm going to leave. Because if he leaves, the world goes kaput. So he has to preserve on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I work as the Father works. I can work on the Sabbath. Because if I don't work, the world's no more. He and he alone works on the Sabbath. And so when he works on the Sabbath, he's showing that he's Yahweh. He's showing he's bringing in the new realities. In the midst of the argument, they turn back to the man who's been healed and ask him the same question they're fighting over. And they ask him, well, what do you think? And the man says, he's a prophet. And like we said before, he's not completely wrong. This is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18. A prophet like Moses, a prophet like me is going to come after me. So he's not completely wrong. But he's not totally right. He won't be totally right until the end of this passage. But he's, there's, like, there's a spark. There's something. And it's like how the Samaritan woman responds to Jesus about who he is. Before Jesus telling her who he is. The Pharisees, are, they're, not, they're not satisfied with anyone's answers. Not convinced this man has been born of blindness. They're like, well, no, this, this can't be possible. No man can do this. Let's go to your parents. Maybe they'll tell us that you're not a, a person born blind. They go to his parents. And again, you have to ask, if he had parents, why is he begging? Why is he on the streets? Again, Mosaic law had a stipulation. You had to take care of your own. You had to break them in. They're breaking, they're violating Mosaic law. They're breaking the Mosaic standards. 
So what do his parents say? And that, that kind of gives you a little bit of a peek to the parents. In verses 20 to 21, they cooperate like, yes, this is our son, and he was born blind. This is correct. But they don't know where or how this happened. So they say, he is of age, kind of like redirecting the phrase. Don't ask us. Don't get us in trouble. Go talk to him. Go get him in trouble. Go get our son in trouble. Like, literally, throwing their son under the bus. Like, go, go get that guy. And, and I'll be honest, these, these two verses are, are really hard for me to read. And they should be really hard for you to read, too. Verses 22 to 23. These things they said because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. All men, it's really easy to be courageous on the internet. Like, tell somebody, I really believe this, and you're really wrong. But in person, you kind of, like, back off a little bit. Like, hold, hold on, like, I don't really believe that. I'm not that guy. I'm not that girl. I think, I think this should punch you a little bit. This, this one should hurt. Because the way their parents respond is, is probably the way most of us are going to respond. Because they throw their son under the bus. We don't want to be thrown out, but you can throw him out. You can throw our son out. It's comfort over confession. It's, it's a difficult thing for us to hear. It's a difficult thing for us to do. Are you willing to be thrown out? Are you willing to say, no, I'll bring him in. I'll, I'll be cast out. I'll be the one who's cast out. Because if the parents admit they're cast out, their son stays in. They don't admit. Their son is cast out. And they stay in. This is verses the one who we see in verse 35. Jesus takes the one who's cast out and says, you know what? I'll be cast out for you. I'll take it. So the Pharisees go back to this man after being cast away by his parents who don't want to be seen or aligned with their son. So I'm like, no, you you can do whatever you want with him. And they tell him, give glory to God. In verse 24. And you just got to like, how much irony is in the statements? When he's standing in front of them, give glory to God. He's like, I'm right here. I'm God. Just saying, I'm, I'm the one you should be giving glory to. They're saying, this Jesus is going around acting like he's Yahweh. But you've got to give Yahweh your adoration. Not this guy. So this man doesn't take the baits. Unlike his parents, he doesn't take the baits. In verses 25 to 27, he's, he's clearly struggling with what's occurred. He knows, he knows that no one can do this besides, besides God. He doesn't say it, but he knows. Say no sinner can do these things, which presumes only a, perf- or only a perfect person can do this. And so the Pharisees can't get the answer they want. They want him to say, yes, he's a sinner, go get him. Nope, I don't think so. And adding this section, verses 27 to 33, they go back to their tried and true. They've already used this argument. This This is the end of John 5. Exactly this phrase. You are his disciple, but we're Moses' disciple. They used that in John 5. How well did that go for them? 
Not well at all. We are disciples of Moses, though. They're the same ones who interact with Jesus in John 5. The same group interact with Jesus who got beats by Jesus on Moses. Because, frankly, they're not disciples of Moses. Not at all. If they were, they know for certain that they cannot do what the law demands and the person that Moses pointed for is Jesus. If they were Moses' disciples, they would recognize Jesus. And like in the previous chapter, when pressed, the Jews said, our father is Abraham. That's a human being. They don't say our father is God. And then the same thing with the Pharisees here. Our teacher is Moses. When Moses says, no, 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 your teacher is Yahweh. I'm the mediator. I'm not the teacher. And then irony of irony again. Again, a lot of what the Pharisees say is just, it's just irony. So it's almost hard not to laugh at some of the responses. They say in verse 29, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. You can, you can almost like laughingly tell them it's because God's speaking to you. Because that's Jesus. God is speaking to you. He spoke to Moses, and then he mediated that speech to you. Now you have God directly speaking to you in Jesus. And so this man, this formerly blind, now spiritually awakened person, or we'll see soon, he starts evangelizing in verse 30. I don't know where he came from, but he opened my eyes. Kind of like, what other evidence do you need? He does what no human being can do. But they respond in verse 31 with the law. Not the gospel. And notice what's, what the man says. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And he's right. He's dead on. This is the man to be, the man formerly blind. He's dead on. Because God does only listen to those who do his will. And the big problem is that none of you have done his will. So you're wondering, how does God listen to me? How does God know me? How does God love me? And so he speaks kind of better than he knows. Because there is somebody who has done his will. And who God listens to. And who you pray through to God. Because God does listen to the one who does his will. The one who healed this man. The remarkable thing about the gospel is is Jesus, who did the will of God, gives you spiritual sights, and not even because you asked for it. Not even because you walked up to God and said, God, I'm blind, give me sights. This man who had no sights asked Jesus for anything. Jesus literally walked up to him, dabbed his eyes, and then he saw. No interaction. It's almost as if you play no part. You're just given sight. This brings us to the last points, spiritual sights. Pharisees who could always see, but could never really see, 
then accuse the man of sinning. Notice what they respond after the man starts evangelizing to them. How dare you teach us, you sinner? Calling him a sinner. As if they're not. Like you, you're, you're the one who sins. But we, we're pretty good. We're pretty pure. It's both a technical term sinner. We saw this in John 7 with the with adulterous woman. We saw this with the Samaritan woman. It's both a technical term, somebody who's ritually impure, but they're also calling him, God doesn't love you, but God loves us. God looks at you as a sinner. God looks at us as pretty pure. Almost to say, you, sir, are a sinner. How dare you teach us anything? How dare you tell us about God? We know you don't. We do the law. Moses taught us we've done everything. The man, though, purified of his impurity by Jesus. He had no purity doesn't mean sin, it just means ritually impure. Is banished from the temple. When he should be welcomed in. Now that he's received sight, he's ritually pure. He should be in the temple. He should be worshiping. And they're saying, get out of here. You who are richly pure, made holy by Jesus, get out of the temple. So hearing this, that this man was cast out after being purified, Jesus finds him and speaks with him. In verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's not just calling a son of man. He's, he's, he's referencing himself I am the Daniel 7, Son of Man, Messiah, who's come down from the heavens in Yahweh's stead to proclaim to you the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying in verse 35. That's who's speaking to you. The man who had never seen anyone ever before then asks, who is it? And after being healed, in verse 37, he says, you have seen him, seen him. Like, you're looking at him. You who couldn't see before, you now look at him. You now can see him with physical eyes and spiritual eyes. It is he who is speaking to you. And so you can kind of reference back to verse 2 and verse 3 and say, No, disciples, his blindness was not due to sin. His blindness is that he could eventually see Jesus once he receives his sight. And without any hesitation, he believes. The man for, for all his life was blind, never seen a person, never seen anything before, can see Jesus physically in front of him like the Pharisees can, but more importantly spiritually can see him. When the Pharisees, who have never been physically blind, can always see, can't actually really see. Don't know who's standing in front of them. And they've never been more blind spiritually. And like the Son of Man in Daniel 7, who comes from the clouds of heaven in glory to establish his king on earth, proclaim the kingdom on earth, Jesus has come to render his judgments and this is probably towards spiritual blindness, especially in the context. 
He's ruling that's unjust or impure, and then gives him his judgment of, now you can see, this is my judgment. But then the Pharisees have to respond. They couldn't just, like, leave it there. Like, praise God. They have to, like, mockingly ask, well, are we also blinds? You almost, like, hear the mocking in their voice. They're trying to, like, kind of skirt around Jesus. Like, well, what about us, Jesus? They should have just, like, stopped after the man was, was, a, was a believer. And Jesus responds, because you know you can see me, you're blind. Because you know you're blind. You have your guilt. You remain in your guilt. You're still in your guilt. Notice he doesn't say you're now guilty. He's like, you are still guilty. You're continuing your guilt. They are the blind leading the blind, according to Matthew 15, 14. But they're so sure we have sights. Like, but if you were this man who knew he was blind, then you would have sights. Because you think you have sights, you're blind. And so it's both a warning to those who can see, physically see with your eyes, but you're blind spiritually. And it's also a solve to those who know I can't see on my own. Yes, I have physical sight, but man, if I didn't have spiritual sight, I would have nothing. Because the kingdom of God is the only society, if you can call it that, where membership is for those who are blind. It's for those who are sinners. So those who say, I can't see, he says, okay, come on in, I'll give you sight. If you say, come in and say, I can see, he's like, I don't want you. You already can see. I want people who can't see, who know they're sinners. The kingdom of God is only for those who are blind and destitute. That's those who enter the gates and can nothing for themselves and say, I am blind. Give me sight. And that's good news. That's really good news for all of you. Because no matter what society you belong to, what society you want to belong to, how exclusive it is, how inclusive it is, Jesus offers you sights by taking your blindness. Like, I'll take that on for you. I'll become blind so that you can see. The only society that does that, only kingdom that does this, where the person who runs the kingdom says, I'll take that on for you. Who doesn't take your money, doesn't take any membership fees, who says, I will give you the membership fee. I will give you the righteousness so you can come on in here. It takes on your impurity and your sin. Because he was treated by the Father on the cross as though he were spiritually blind. Treated as a sinner. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He was treated as ritually and physically and spiritually impure. He was treated as this man was. And as you were. He was placed on the cross for sinners. Placed on the cross for those who had no sights. And then he rose to give you sight. There's no more guilt in your accounts, but you have the righteousness of Christ in your account, and now you can see him. We can't see him physically yet, but you will see him physically in new creation. And you will have the eyes to see him in new creation. You have sight to see Jesus, whom you will behold physically for all of eternity. Let's pray. 
Lord, it's such good news that we can admit and be honest with ourselves that we cannot see right, that we cannot hear right, that we do not love you. And Lord, it is those who admit those things whom you accept into your kingdom, who you've purchased and placed in your kingdom, those who are spiritually blind, whom you gave sight, those who are spiritually deaf, and you gave hearing. And we, will, we see you by spiritual sight now. We hear of you. We taste of you. But Lord, there's coming a day where we will see you. We will see your son in the flesh, whom we see now by spiritual sight. We will see by physical sight forever. And that is why you gave us sight, so that one day we will behold you. And we pray that it's true for all those here today. For all this in your son's name, amen.